Our New Testament reading this morning is from Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became a dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Nearly 15 years ago, I found myself hiking along the edge of the Congolese jungle on Uganda's southwestern border. The soles of my cowboy boots sought purchase on the wet grass, and rainwater slowly dripped from the brim of my leather hat as I trudged on through the damp wilderness with a knife clenched between my teeth. The knife is a rhetorical flourish, but the rest of this story is true. I could tell you why I was there, but that's a story for another day. Suffice it to say that I had reached a significant altitude, not a mountain, really, but an enormous hill. And as I gazed out from its summit, I found the most remarkable view I'd ever seen in my life, second only to the faces of my newborn children. From where I stood, I had a clear view of the landscape for miles around in every direction, hindered only by the rolling fog. And from up there, I could see not one or two, but five distinct volcanoes, their peaks rising out of the dense jungle. It was one of those rare places, a kind of axis mundi, a sacred, natural shrine that resembles no other place on earth. And as I stood there, marveling at it all, clumsily trying to capture this breathtaking view with my crummy old flip phone, a lone figure wandered out of the mist. I'd never seen anyone like him. He was probably five feet tall, if I'm being generous, and he was garbed in some kind of aboriginal raiment, strips of cloth adorned with beads and feathers. He was a much older man than I, his 
leathery skin, worn and wrinkled. He carried a severe expression on his face and a long wooden staff with a sharpened point in his hand. A dangerous man, maybe. He was, the guide who I was traveling with later told me, one of the pygmies, a cultural uh, group of folks native to the Congo, known for their short stature, who subsist on ancient hunter-gatherer practices and a bit of trade with nearby towns and villages. I tried to converse with him, but naturally we didn't speak the same language. I'd hoped to take his picture, though, and tried to convey that intent and ask for his permission as best I could. And when it seemed that we'd reached an understanding, I raised my flip phone to capture the image. And to my surprise, he smiled broadly and began to dance, striking a variety of poses like he was on the cover of GQ magazine, or maybe Teen Vogue, or maybe Saturday Night Fever, I don't know. He was all over the place. We both laughed together, and that unexpected encounter was somehow more sacred than the ancient, majestic mountains all around us, standing solemn and still. We tend to seek out these sacred experiences in the wilderness, off the beaten path in uncharted territory. Mountains are especially prevalent in sacred literature and myth. The Greek gods lived on Mount Olympus, and Moses received the stone tablets of the law on Mount Sinai. This shouldn't be surprising. I mean, it's, it's hard to find anything sacred sometimes amidst the whirl of commerce and the noise of a busy city street or anywhere in the loud chaos of everyday life where everything is flattened into a bland, tasteless pancake. It's not that the sacred is absent in modern life or at lower elevations, but it can be harder to perceive. And so from time to time, we look for holy wonder in other places. Moses finds it on Mount Horeb, where he leads his flock of sheep a bit further than usual one day, beyond the wilderness, as it says in the text. It's a place he doesn't ordinarily go. We don't know why he goes out there. Maybe he's fed up. Maybe he just wants to be by himself. But there, he finds God burning in a bush that flames will not consume. And there, he's given a divine purpose, a holy vocation, to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But Moses is afraid. Who wouldn't be? when faced with something so radically unprecedented. The unknown is frightening, and Moses is in uncharted territory. He's never spoken with the creator of the universe before. I've talked before about so-called simulation theory, namely the idea that our world is a vast and complex simulation run by a higher intelligence, a creator, it's a very sci-fi concept on the surface, but Plato effectively pioneered the idea, and a lot of religious traditions have incorporated some element of it. Most religions profess belief in a higher reality than this one. Now, I bring this up because I want to talk about some folks who believe that they can confuse the simulation by diverging 
from what they call their reality tunnel, that is, the normal trajectory of their everyday lives. By using a quantum computer to generate random coordinates, these randonauts, that's what they call themselves, randonauts, attempt to visit random places they wouldn't ever normally go. Alleys, side streets, buildings, forests, off the beaten path, uncharted territory. And there, according to their online forums, they find strange artifacts and experiences. Murals painted on buildings they've never seen before, strange collections of objects, signs and monuments, and other bizarre paraphernalia. Apparently, and somewhat disturbingly, it's not uncommon for randonauts to stumble across bottles of urine. According to one online post, the urine is a metaphor, and I quote, it is entangled with consciousness. Indeed, someone else replied sarcastically, there are few things that will make you feel as alive as you do when stumbling across a vessel of somebody else's bodily fluids. Now, it may seem absurd, but the practice goes to show how desperate people can be to escape from their mundane existence, their so-called reality tunnel, and find something sacred. But there are other times, of course, when we'd prefer to just stay home. Times when the unexpected, the unexplored, the unknown, the uncharted seems better left that way. I think that's how Moses probably felt. He had a good thing going up until now. He'd settled down into a quiet, peaceful life, started a family, had a modest career. He didn't want to be dragged on some grand adventure to save the world. And I think Jesus' disciples probably felt that way too. When they ascended that mountain with Jesus on that fateful day, they probably figured they're going for a little hike. Maybe ask Jesus a few questions or listen to him divulge a bit of wisdom. I don't think they expected him to explode into a halo of blinding light no more than Moses expected the bush to burst into flame or the rest of us expect anything at all beyond our regular routine. And when Jesus is transfigured, they immediately try to get a handle on the situation, put it in a box, force it to conform to something they can deal with. They decide to build a series of little houses and shrines, a nod to civilization out here in the wilderness. And that's because they're afraid of what can't be identified or contained. And if we're being honest, so are we. Most of us don't try to wander off the beaten path too often. We prefer to stay where it feels safe. But sometimes, friends, the wilderness finds us. These days, even the regular routine feels dangerous. That's why there's panic at the Costco. That's why people are fighting over canned food at Walmart. That's why I'm talking to a video camera right now instead of looking at all of your pretty faces. It's hard to ignore the elephant in the room, especially when there is literally almost no one else here. Just me and the elephant. And I'd rather it was you. The elephant is bad company. But here we are. 
The coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, has begun to radically reshape our lives and to turn them upside down. Even though we all saw it coming, it was upon us pretty suddenly. What began as a relatively normal week has left most of us scrambling for answers, safety, and most of all, toilet paper. I paid $30 for 12 rolls of the stuff on eBay, which is bad enough. But to my horror, I also discovered that some people on there are selling it by the square. Can you imagine getting that envelope in the mail and desperately tearing it open only to find that you've torn your little square in half? Can you imagine in that moment falling to your knees and succumbing to despair? Has there ever been an image so filled with desperate woe, so relentlessly apocalyptic? But this is where we are. Some people are sick. Some people are dying. All of us are scared, or at least anxious, if not about the virus itself, then about its impact. Markets are tumbling. Kids are being sent home from school, and the clergy are preaching to row upon row of empty pews, hoping that someone is listening. This is where we are, deep in the wilderness of the unknown, wandering in uncharted territory. This is where we are. But who we are is another question, one that will be answered by how we respond to this crisis. As I was about to pick up my youngest son from preschool last Friday, I drove by an abandoned car with its trunk open, and next to it, on the ground, was what looked to be a 12-pack of Charmin Ultra toilet paper. It looked like some kind of trap, as if anyone who'd stopped to investigate would be besieged by bandits trying to steal their gasoline or their car. And friends, in that moment, though, the thought crossed my mind that maybe I ought to risk it. My better angels prevailed, but better angels might be harder to come by in the weeks ahead. So it's important, critical, maybe now more than ever, that we remember who we are. We are God's people, called to do God's work, and that is why, even though we aren't here together in this sanctuary, we are committed to continuing our PADS ministry and other services that benefit the most vulnerable among us. And I want to thank everyone who is making that happen. That is why we must keep an eye out for whatever light there is to be found in this darkness, be it a burning bush, the light of Christ, or some other holy encounter in the wilderness. Theologian John Pokinghorn, a former professor of theoretical mathematics at Cambridge and an Anglican priest, writes... Regions where real novelty occurs, where really new things happen that you haven't seen before, are always regions which are at the edge of chaos. He goes on, if you're too much on the orderly side of that borderline, everything is so rigid that nothing really ever happens. 
You just get rearrangements. If you're too far on the haphazard side, nothing persists. Everything just falls apart. It's in these ambiguous areas where order and disorder interlace, where really new things happen, where the action is. The edge of chaos. That's where we are. And I've been there before. Maybe you have too. When I was 13 years old, I went out with my older brother and a friend of his who'd just gotten his license. It was late, it was dark, and we had no business driving on dark entry road. It was a lone highway through the forest, the only way to get to what's known as Dudley Town, a settlement mysteriously abandoned by its inhabitants in the 18th century. The remnants of the old village are notoriously haunted by ghosts, satanic rituals, and the local police who patrol the area on behalf of the Dark Entry Forest Association. But here we were. And here we ran afoul of a downed tree that blocked us from going any further. And when my brother's friend tried to put the car in reverse, we backed straight into a ditch. Now this was before cell phones even existed. There was nothing to do but walk. I've never been anywhere so dark. Beyond the glow of the car's headlights, there was nothing and no one. And after walking in this void for a while, we saw a light on the horizon. Two of them, headlights. A pickup truck was winding its way down the road, occupied by a lone driver. He was a little older than us, probably in his late 20s, a guy with big glasses and greasy hair. He might have been me from the future. He stopped and offered to help, but when he leaned into his truck to retrieve the tire jack and said, there's a lot of crazy people out here, I was sure in that moment he was going to bludgeon me with it. Kind of like the pygmy with a sharp stick in the Congo. Kind of like everything we fear. Instead, he used it to get us out of the ditch. And before we knew it, we were on our way home. May it be so for all of us. May we find our way out of this wilderness in time. May we find our way home. But before we do, May we encounter something unexpected, something unknown, something holy. Amen.